0: saved does, but I think that particular phrase you can't say I got saved at this time that's not in the scripture Um, people talk about praying to receive Christ, that's not in the scripture at all people talk about asking Jesus into their heart, that's not in the scripture at all, and yet very few people flip out over that one, but when you start talking about the rapture, which is just using a relatively modern English word to describe something that very definitely is in the scripture that bothers them so we're going to be talking about that today. <clears throat> if you'd like to turn there ahead of time, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 is where we're starting. We're also going to be going to Daniel chapter 9, so some of you have been anxious that we talk about Daniel. Well, we're fixing to. Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and your grace as we approach your word. ask yeah, so that you'd help us to understand, you'd help us to apply it to our lives and use it for the stated purpose that it's intended for, that this passage is to offer us hope and comfort in the face of death and in the face of the uncertain future. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today's sermon is The Rapture. Does it appear in Scripture, the rapture of the church? And the short answer is yes. Okay, we'll rise for the benediction. No. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to actually study it. <clears throat> so starting in verse 13 of <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4, now I'd like to point out before I even start that in the original writing, this was a letter to the, to the believers at Thessalonica <clears throat> that didn't have any chapter divisions that didn't have any verse numbers those were added in in the i think in the 1300s by a guy named erasmus but i may be a century off and on the time <clears throat> and they're helpful they mean that i can tell you go look this up and you know right where to go um or you're supposed to but the problem is we tend to think well then this ends at the end of this chapter no it doesn't The thought pattern that's starting in verse 13 flows all the way into chapter 5, verse 10. So that's what I'm going to read. So follow along here. I'm reading from the King James. You can read from any Bible you want. Chapter 4, verse 13, but I would not have you to be, be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. <clears throat> for if, <clears throat> for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not, King James says, prevent, it means proceed, shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So we've seen that his twin purposes in speaking this was to offer comfort and hope. We see a bunch of other things we'll come back to. Chapter 5, but... Of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, and we're going to spend some time talking about that, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail or labor upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, that's plural, ye, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunk are drunk in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. That's a good, solid promise for you. God hath not promised uh, appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with him. I was quite a bit there. We're not going to get done with it today. So... <clears throat> We'll be back next week probably talking about the Day of the Lord and probably the week after that because <clears throat> there's a ton of information here. Part of the problem is when people hear the phrase Day of the Lord, they, they think it's talking about some 24-hour period of time, and it's not. <clears throat> In fact, what we're going to find out next week is that it lasts for a minimum of 1,007 years, just a little over that actually. And we're also going to find out that it begins with the rapture. That's the portion of the day of the Lord that comes as a thief in the night. All the rest of it is laid out like choreography. God mm-hmm. spelled out exactly what's going to happen throughout the tribulation and exactly what's going to happen during the kingdom age, although it gets more brief about that. It's a thousand years long. He, just, he tells us some of what's going to happen during the kingdom age in the Old Testament and then how it's going to end and then the great white throne judgment. So that, that's the end of the day of the Lord. so Paul flat out says that the reason he has written these things is to offer the Thessalonian believers comfort and hope in the face of death in earlier passages he talked about the abuse that they had received as new believers the tribulation that had happened to them the persecution that they had suffered for their faith and the next chapter chapter 5 which we just read first 10 verses He addresses the coming judgment on the unbelieving world, and that includes both the Gentiles and the Jews. (coughs) We've already said we want to remember that when we're reading this, there were no chapter or verse divisions, so it flows straight through from chapter 4 into chapter 5, and there's a sequence there. It's important that we get that sequence. (coughs) What we saw in chapter 4 is the catching away of the church. That's another phrase that we use to describe the rapture. <clears throat> it's the most complete description of what we call the rapture of the church in, in the Bible. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 53 gives some more facts regarding that that we wouldn't see here. Here in 1 Thessalonians 4, all we saw is that we're going to be caught up with him. If you'll hold your finger there, and we're going to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <clears throat> verses 50. Fifty through fifty-three. Pardon me, I woke up with a lot of crud in my throat this morning it's from allergies. There's just tons of pollen in the air. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter fifteen is frequently called the, rat, uh, the resurrection chapter, <clears throat> because it's all about the resurrection, both the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the righteous dead. <clears throat> But in verse 50 he says, now this I say, brethren, speaking to believers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now here he's not referring to the kingdom of heaven, the millennial kingdom on earth. He's talking about the personal relationship with God, to going into his throne room, so to speak, to walk into his physical presence. It says flesh and blood can't do that. This isn't the only place where it says that, but... This is one of the most clear statements that flesh and blood cannot enter into God's presence. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Our natural selves can't become incorruptible. They can't become eternally moral and righteous. But in verse 51, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, in the Bible, especially in the King James Bible, when they talk about Mystery. They're not talking about a novel where you're trying to figure out that the butler did it in the kitchen with a lead pipe. That's the clue game. That's, that's a mystery that we make up. Mystery in the Bible is different. It means something that has previously not been revealed, but he's about to reveal it now. That's what the word mystery means. And he says, I show you a mystery. <clears throat> we shall not all sleep, but we... That means we won't all die. <clears throat> but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible it's talking about our mortal bodies must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality there's going to be a a change it's not even in the blink of an eye it's the twinkling of an eye it's the reflection of light that fast <clears throat> that something's gonna happen. He doesn't go into the physics and and so forth of trying to explain how it happens That's really neither here nor there. You know, he doesn't he didn't describe how he stopped the storm either He just said hush and it stopped But you think through that as a someone who does understand physics you think well It's impossible for the millions of tons of moving water in those big waves that were washing over their boat to just stop No, it's not impossible. It's just impossible by natural law. He's the master. He said stop, and it stopped. We've seen the wind suddenly die down, and we would say, well, yeah, yeah, that was nice. That was good timing. No, water doesn't do that. The the energy has to be dissipated by natural law. It's okay for him to do things that we don't understand, and it's okay for the natural world to physically obey him at his any command. In fact, you stop and think about this, that the only things in the history of the universe that have ever disobeyed God are the demons and us. We're not in real good company in that in that regard. You want to give this some thought. So he says here that he's gonna from our perspective, magically, <clears throat> he's gonna by his power, by his authority, suddenly change our mortal bodies into immortal bodies. There will no longer be flesh and blood. It's also important to recognize that the last trumpet that he's talking about there in 1 Corinthians 15 is identical to the last trumpet here in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven <clears throat> with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. That's the last trumpet for the church age. That's not to be confused with the last trumpet in the tribulation. There's seven trumpets in the tribulation period, and the last trumpet is in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, and it has nothing to do with calling up the church. It has to do with announcing the next wave of judgment that's washing over the whole world under the, the judgments in the tribulation. Horrible time this one is the last trumpet of the church age in fact if you want to we're not going to go there right now but if you want to go and look uh, revelation chapter one excuse me chapter four verse one through three talks about a voice like a trumpet calling me saying come up here and we see that the apostle john was called up off of the earth into god's presence he's standing before the throne and as you read through the rest of the book of revelation the church is not is not on earth anymore. It's there in heaven with Him. I'm getting ahead of myself. But Revelation chapter nine, excuse me, chapter five, verses nine and ten describe twenty four elders standing before the, the throne, and by their own description, they have to be the church. Why? Because He says, "You have redeemed us." The, these twenty four elders are speaking to the Lamb, speaking to Jesus saying, you have redeemed us by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and you have made us unto our God kings and priests. The church is the only people that's true about. The Jews weren't called out of every nation and kingdom and so forth. They were were the Jews. They were just one nation. In fact, when he called them, there was only one guy and his wife, Abraham and Sarah. He made them a nation. Yes, he chose them as a nation, but he made them a nation. They weren't chosen out of every kingdom and tribe and people and nation and so forth. <clears throat> and the Jews in, uh, I think, Exodus chapter 19, it says that that they are ordained to be a kingdom of priests for God, and they will be during the, during the millennial kingdom. Everybody in Israel is going to be a priest for the rest of the world. And that's what he had ordained from the beginning. But that's not what he says about these people. These people, he says, you've made us unto our God, kings, plural, and priests. I've looked it up in the original language. It is not the word kingdom. It's kings, plural. So this is a different group. It's not Israel. And because they came out of every language and tribal group and ethnic group and national group, it is the church. But where are they? Well, they're standing before the throne, singing to God in chapter five of Revelation, and the tribulation starts in chapter six. You can give that some thought. <clears throat> Not going any further with that right now. What about this thief in the night idea? <clears throat> First Thessalonians five two says, You know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. <clears throat> some of you may have had some experience with a thief in the night. I know at my mom's house, we woke up one day and found out that somebody had stolen the battery off her tractor. And they didn't even bother to unbolt it. They cut through the battery cables, so we had to go buy new cables and a new battery. And a little while later, probably the same people broke into her shed and stole her chainsaw. Okay, that's a thief in the night. I knew a couple of young women that <clears throat> shared an apartment, they each had their own bedroom, a couple of single women. And they woke up one morning and found out that somebody had broken into their house while they were sleeping and went through all their stuff and stole their valuables while they slept. And they didn't even feel safe living there anymore, knowing that somebody had invaded their home. <clears throat> it's a bad feeling to wake up and realize that you've had a thief during the night. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 if you'd like to turn there, I think there's something important there for us to see. It's right before First John. This is almost at the end of your Bible. Second Peter chapter three verse ten. If I took it by itself, I would get a rather confused view of the Day of the Lord, because he tackles both ends of the Day of the Lord. Second Peter chapter three verse ten. <clears throat> but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That's the dead end of the millennial kingdom. That's right before the great white throne of judgment. But the thief in the night part is on the other end. <clears throat> he says, the earth also and the works there that, that are therein shall be burned up. So he touched first on the very beginning, opening bell, if you will, of the day of the Lord, that is repeatedly says, comes as a thief in the night. There's only one portion of the day of the Lord that can come as a thief in the night with nobody knowing what's going to happen next, and that's the rapture. Why? Because every bit of the rest of it is laid out, like I said, is choreographed. We can read through the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel side by side and see exactly what's going to happen in the tribulation. Horrible, horrible stuff. We can look in the Old Testament prophets, all of them talk about the day of the Lord, starting with Isaiah, that's the first mention. But all of them uh, talk about different aspects of the day of the Lord. Some of them about all the horrible stuff that's happening as it starts during the tribulation. Some of them talking about the wonderful blessings of peace and joy and happiness during the Kingdom Age. And finally, talking about the destruction at the very end. Because it's a thousand years, a thousand seven, actually, that all collectively is called the Day of the Lord. And we'll talk about that next week. I keep getting ahead of myself. I guess I just must like that topic. So... Is there one? A couple of more places where he talks about the thief in the night aspect. Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 and 43, Jesus warned them, watch therefore, he's speaking to the Jews, and he's talking about, Matthew 24, he's specifically talking about the tribulation period and coming on the kingdom. But he says, Watch therefore, for you know not which hour your Lord doth come, but know this that if the good man of the house had known in which hour the thief, or which watch, which portion of the night, the thief would come. See, he's comparing himself, his own coming, with the thief in the night. He he would have watched. He would not have allowed his house to be broken up. I mean, think about that. If you knew what time a robber was going to show up, you'd be sitting in the front door with the, you know, I don't know, whatever your favorite means of defending your home is. I know for a lot of you it would be a shotgun, which would be appropriate. <clears> then <throat> Revelation 16:15, he warns them again, and this time he flat out says, Behold, I come as a thief. Re- blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So several warnings, mostly given to Israel, <clears throat> stating that the day of the Lord would come as a thief in the night. But what's implied in the warning in Matthew is that the character of this event is that the world, including Israel, is going to wake up and find out there's been, that something's missing, find out that they've been invaded, find out that something happened, and all these people are gone. They've been robbed. Now, most of them will feel like, well, good riddance, got rid of those crazy Christians and you know, all these crazy street preachers have been bugging us. Okay? Well, problem is the reason they're gone is because something else just began. And that's what we saw in First Thessalonians five, he says that when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. The tribulation has begun. there is no escaping it. <clears throat> so what's missing? It's us. If we read First Thessalonians four and five as a unit, which they are. We right away see that the church is what's gone missing. <clears throat> we also see that immediately after that event, the tribulation has begun and there is no escape. He says that it's like a woman beginning childbirth, is going into labor. She knows the time is here. There is no escaping it. We're going through this one way or another. It's that, that picture is frequently brought up also. <clears throat> So why was the rapture of the church kept a secret? Why did, why does God not tell them when and so forth? Well, the rapture of the church is a secret because the entire mm, period of the church age, the entire existence, the entire concept of the church age was kept a secret until after Jesus' crucifixion, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension. His burial, his resurrection, his res- ascension, everything had happened before the first human knew about the church. Jesus knew about it, obviously. In fact, he prophesied regarding it. He says, upon this rock shall I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16:18. Okay, So Jesus obviously knew about it. There's other places where he hinted about it. He says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. I must go and bring them also, so there will be one fold and one shepherd. There's no longer the dividing wall between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. You, know, you can think back to the Old Testament where uh, Naaman the Syrian was healed of his leprosy by, Elijah, by Elisha, excuse me, by God's power. Elisha told him to go dunk himself in the Jordan River seven times, and he'd be healed. And he was, but he didn't become a Jew. He went right back to Syria where he was the king's right-hand man. And his only request was that he be allowed to take a mule load of dirt with him because he was going to make an altar out of Jewish dirt and he was going to only worship the Jewish God. He did not become a Jew. But there was always this division between Gentile believers and Jewish believers until the crucifixion. We read in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus broke down the middle wall of partition, thus making peace, and it says they made of two one new man. That's the church. Okay, so that was a secret. If you'd like to know just how big a secret it was, you could turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to go there eventually. But right now, let's go back and see just how big a secret it was in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 9, I promised you we'd go there. So Daniel is right after Ezekiel. And Daniel chapter 9 is right after Daniel chapter 8. Daniel, chapter 9. This is an important prophecy because it tells us a whole bunch of detail <coughs> about a timeline that runs all the way from four, from 446 B.C. to whenever the tribulation is over, actually. Daniel lived about 600 A.D., so he was 160 years before what he said was going to happen, happened. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 21. uh, He was praying. He says, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the the sins of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. He's praying for Jerusalem and for the temple. He says, yes, while I was speaking in prayer... Even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, or evening sacrifice, and he informed me, and talked with me, and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show you, for you are greatly beloved." That's nice. Man, wouldn't it be nice to hear that from God, that you're greatly beloved? All you got to do is read your Bible. That's where it says that to you.
1: <clears throat>
0: but he didn't have a Bible to read, and God told him in person, Thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now, verses 24 through 27 give us something we call the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's a prophecy talking about a, a, uh, 70 seven-year periods, we're going to find out that it's years, not days. He says, "...seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city, upon the Jews in Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy." He's got a whole bunch of purposes of what's going to happen because of these seventy weeks of years. <clears throat> know therefore, verse twenty-five. Uh, yeah, verse twenty-five. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. Notice it's not the temple; it's Jerusalem. That command only happened once. Building the the rebuilding of the temple has happened several times, three times, I think. So this is a specific time. The going forth of the commandment to restore and and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. that's talking about Jesus. Shall be seven weeks and a three score and two weeks, that's sixty nine weeks. I don't know why he broke it up into a seven and sixty two. I've never been able to figure out what happened at the end of forty nine years, and then the rest of the four hundred and some odd years, four hundred and thirty four years that that came. After that, but at the end of that time, after the end of the 69 weeks, 483 years, (coughs) it says that the street will be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. (coughs) And after the threescore and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off. At the end of the 69th week of years, 483 years from the time of the command to rebuild Jerusalem. So he's given him a start and finish here shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. He's talking about the crucifixion right there. And then notice it's just, it hadn't even got a period there. All it's got is a colon. And it says, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. Well, that didn't happen right after the crucifixion. And it goes on to say that they're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary, the temple. Well, the temple did get destroyed 70 years, well, 70 A.D., um, but it says the end thereof shall be with the flood and it's not talking about water and unto the end of the war desolations are determined and he that is this prince that shall come this evil prince that shall, will come will confirm the covenant with many for one week it's going to make a seven year peace treaty and in the middle of the week he shall uh, shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease <coughs> And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now when we talk about this, we think, well, yeah, yeah, I've heard about the abomination of desolation. And we've heard about somebody making a seven-year peace treaty with Israel and then breaking it after three and a half years. But that didn't happen right after the crucifixion. He jumped straight from the crucifixion to the beginning of the tribulation. We're not there yet. We've been been—we're almost 2,000 years past the, tri- uh, past the crucifixion right now. And we're still not to the part he's talking about. Now there's people that try to say, no, no, that already happened. It was Antiochus Epiphanes in 162 BC or 165 BC or whatever it was, then when he would defeated and destroyed Jerusalem and sacrificed a sow on the altar in the temple. Okay, that did defile the temple, but he didn't destroy the temple, and he never made a contract, uh, what do you call it, a peace treaty. He never made a covenant with Israel, so that can't be him. It's not him. Besides the fact that Jesus in Matthew 24 said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, as spoken by the prophet Daniel, let he who hears understand, or he who reads understand, then he's talking future tense this is yet to come and jesus said that about the abomination of desolation as being a future event when he was preaching in in, uh, matthew 24. so it can't be that antiochus Epiphanes, 150 years earlier 180 years earlier or whatever it was it can't be him it looked kind of like it but that's not him it was just maybe an early fulfillment so we could see what it looked like but The fact is, it's still future tense. So what we know here from this passage is that there was a set time from, uh, I think I wrote it down, 446 B.C. when King Artaxerxes made the command for Nehemiah, this is from Nehemiah chapter 1, you can read it in your Bible, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls, rebuild the city, get the gate put up again. That's the only time that happened. And from that day forward to the crucifixion was 483 years, with only seven years left. That many. Left in the, seven, in the 490 year prophecy that he laid out. And we haven't started that last seven years yet. So where are we? Well, we're, we're not in that, we're not included in that. Why? Well, the Old Testament prophets were not allowed to know about the fact of the church. The whole church age was not included in any of their prophecies, not even close. Jesus, like I said, gave a couple of hints about it, but even he didn't spell it out and say, okay, here's what's about to happen. He said some things that we can look back and realize this is what he was talking about, but the people he was talking to couldn't have possibly imagined what he was about to do. And Paul says that. So when we read this, the first question that ought to come to mind is, what happened to the church age? He jumped right from the crucifixion into the tribulation. Already I got almost a 2,000 year gap there. What happened? Well, we weren't included. The church is not included in that. We're not a part of that. God stated his purpose. He said the judgment was about to fall. But he stated his purpose and the recipients of that judgment. He said that these 70 weeks of years are determined upon whom? Thy people, the Jews, and thy holy city, Jerusalem, and incidentally all the world with them because, first place, God's using the world to judge Israel. He's done that over and over, but he's going to be doing it big time during the tribulation. But we're simply not part of it. We're not included. So, why the mystery? Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. <coughs> Having a real hard time reading my notes this morning. I think I need new glasses. Of course, I've told you that before, so that's no surprise. Ephesians chapter f- 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. I used to have a hard time getting those four in order until somebody said, it's easy, Chad, just go eat popcorn. And after that, I never forgot again. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to go ahead and read from King James. He says, for this cause I, Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. You remember he was writing this from prison. He was in prison because he had been sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. If you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which has given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Well, here we go. We're going to find out what the mystery is and why it was a mystery. As I wrote before in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's the mystery? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery. It's the, the fact that he's called out a single body that is combination of jews and gentiles joined by one faith in in that one messiah that one resurrected lord whereof i was made a minister minister just means servant in other places paul calls himself a servant of the gospel in romans chapter one he says that he's a servant of the gospel Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me whom less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, there's the other half of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent, here we go, to the intent that now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, principalities and powers are different categories of angelic beings, and he specifically says the ones in heavenly places, so the holy angels, not the ones that fell with Satan, that to those characters, whatever the principalities and powers are, they're different kinds of angels, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Does it make any difference to you to know that your life is an object lesson for the entire angelic army of God? That they're watching to see, oh, that's how grace works. Oh, oh that really is wise. Yeah, I'm impressed. You know, not wise of us, it's wise of God. He says that he's making known through the church the manifold wisdom of God. I, to me, it's kind of I, I can't imagine what they could learn from me They're not learning anything from me, they're learning by watching God's grace working out in yours and my life. And to me, that makes it feel like, well, maybe it is all worthwhile. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens. I think, what is the sense in this? Why would you allow this saint of yours to suffer from Parkinson's disease and this saint of yours to die of multiple myeloma and this saint of yours to be murdered in his sleep? Why would you allow that? Well, because he's using the church as a body, the entire church, that's from day of Pentecost on, to teach something to the holy angels. Now, I've got some suppositions regarding that, and we're going to have to touch on them another day because I can see we're running out of time. <clears throat> but the fact is, God is using us to show something, to demonstrate something to the angelic host who had not followed satan into his rebellion do i understand it no emphatically no i do not understand it i don't understand why in the world our lives could be any kind of a lesson to those created beings who were created with far more intelligence and far more wisdom than we're ever going to have and yet we're getting put into a position that's above them i don't understand that either you can look this up on your own. We're not going there today, but you look up Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. It flat says that you, as a believer, are already seated with Jesus in the throne in heaven. God's already got you home. You don't have to worry about not making it. By the way, that's what we've been talking about for the last, what, four or five weeks in Wednesday night studies, the security of the believer. <clears throat> So why would it be surprising that he would complete the separation? He's already separated us from the world. He separated us from Israel. The church-age believers are a, a special category. We're separated from both the world and Israel and for a purpose that's far beyond our, comp- our comprehension. God says so. He's got a purpose there that he had before he created the world. He knew what he was going to use us for. So if that's his purpose, then why would it be so surprising that he would complete the separation by pulling us off the earth before this final judgment? What did he do with Noah at the time of the flood? He pulled Noah off the earth before the destruction of the flood. What did he do with uh, Lot when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? He pulled Lot and his family out of Sodom before he destroyed Sodom. What did he do with Israel at the time of the exodus? he set them aside as his people and all the he separated them so they're in the land of goshen and separated from from egypt and all the plagues landed on just egypt and not on the jews until he got to the passover lamb and he separated them one last time there he said you put the blood of that lamb on the lintel on the two doorposts of your door i love that story why what did i just do watch my hand put the smack, there's to strike that blood on the lintel and the two doorposts. That's 1,500 years before the crucifixion. They were huddled under the same blood of the cross as we huddle under for safety. They were separated from Egypt before the destruction hit. And that night, there was somebody dead in every house that did not have that blood. When they went through the Red Sea, they were separated one last time. They went through on dry ground. And over in uh, Psalms, it says that, that There was a wall of water on each side of them, and they went through the depths on dry ground. It wasn't some shallow spot. There are people that say, well, really, it was only about six inches of water there anyway. Well, A, 3,000 years ago, with all the shifting sands, I can't tell you how deep the water was 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. But if it was only six inches deep, that's an even bigger miracle because you got to watch God drown the entire Egyptian army in six inches of water. You know. no it was deep <clears throat> but if he separated them each before he made the destruction and he's already separated us from the world through the blood of Jesus and he's seated us with him in heaven already why would he not complete the separation by moving us out of harm's way before he executes judgment on the rebellious world and on Israel who's rebelled against them for thousands of years they're still his chosen people They're still going to be, but judgment's coming. We're going to talk more about the day of the Lord and what's going to happen after that uh, in the coming weeks. We're out of time today. Way too much for one message, so we're going to stop there. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and guidance through the week as we start trying to wrap our heads around the reality of the separation that you've already created between the church-age believers and every other person on earth and the separation that we are to experience individually between ourselves and our old lives, between ourselves and the world around us, and that the future separation is yet to come. We're looking forward to it. We don't understand it, but we're blessing your name and trusting in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing one more song together. <clears throat>